Amen. It's so good to share God's Word with you this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. We're going to continue our time in the book of Hosea this morning as we walk through uh, the first 11 verses in the book of Hosea. If you're joining with us on, ca- uh, on campus and you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 844. 844. Not only would we uh, like you to use that Bible this morning, but we would love for you to take it home with you and study God's Word throughout the week. And if you choose to worship with us on any given Sunday, please uh, bring that with you so we can continue to study God's Word uh, together. I do want to make sure that we as a church family will commit to joining together uh, and worshiping the Lord, not only on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week, and that we will honestly pray that God would show himself faithful, not to us, not just to us, but to those who will be coming uh, and enjoying the services that we have over the next week specifically. As we uh, continue our time in Hosea, uh, we need to be reminded of everything that has kind of happened over the past several weeks. We are in our 10th sermon in this particular message of this series. And as we think about the book of Hosea, Let's think about all that the sin of God's people, all their sin, all of that staining, if you will. The sins of God's people have been persistent, they've been consistent, they've been widespread, and they've been unrelenting. They worshiped false gods, they made sacrifices on high places, the same high places that were meant uh, for sacrifices for the one and true God, but yet they have falsely worshiped other gods. They made idols with their own hands. They committed adultery. They were proud. They transgressed the covenant like Adam. They were murderers, thieves, liars, drunkards. They made false promises, false sacrifices, trusted in their idols, trusted in their own deeds. They even trusted in the enemy and yet did not fully trust in the Lord. The priests were corrupt. The leaders were deceptive. The false prophets led the people astray. Their hearts were divided They did not fear the Lord. They did not acknowledge the Lord. They were like alien children, a hot oven, a cake not turned, a silly dove, a faulty bow, a useless vessel, a wild donkey. The scripture says that they will sow the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. The land is barren. The womb is barren. And yet in the midst of that, in the book of Hosea, we see God is a jealous husband. He's a frustrated shepherd a ferocious lion, and yet he yokes the stubborn calf. He gives a urgent warning of repentance, the need for repentance. The trumpets have sounded, the horns have been blown, not just once, but multiple times. Why? Because of the severity of God's punishment for sin, unrepentant sin is on the way, and that too has been announced many times. We get to the end of Hosea 10 from last week, and We almost can't take it anymore because God's punishment for unrepentant sin is on the horizon. God's relentless reminder to his people that punishment is there. And yet in the midst of all that, we must not forget that the book of Hosea at its core is a love story. But not just any love story. It's not primarily about a husband and a faithfully unfaithful bride as in Gomer. But it's a redemptive love story on how God is going to redeem his people from their sin. It is our redeeming God who by his amazing grace 
pleads for his bride to return. And in our discipline, he hedges up places of obstacle, discipline, if you will, so that that rebellion will not be easy. It is God who initiates this reconciliation, and it is God who accomplishes this reconciliation. And when we get to Hosea chapter 11, not only is God's love just sprinkled through all the chapters, here in chapter 11, it's like the floodgates open wide. And it's an amazing story and reminder of God's redemptive love for his bride. And with that, we read verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifted a little child to the cheek and bent down to feed him. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give up on Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Admon? How can I make you like Zebuhim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce angle, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we study your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and allow our ears to be attentive to the amazing message of the faithfulness of God expressed through us in Christ and revealed to us through your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would submit to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All throughout the book of Hosea, it's been a story about a marriage, if you will. We, we saw in the first three chapters God instructing Hosea to marry a faithfully unfaithful bride. And that's kind of been the backdrop, backdrop of the story all through uh, these past ten chapters. But when we get to Hosea chapter 11, the metaphor changes, not, not from a, a marriage perspective, but from a father's love to his child. It's that family perspective that we begin to see in Hosea 11. And this is important because sometimes we, we forget the personal side of God. And so God is giving us a glimpse into his love for his people. And I started thinking about family for just a moment. And I want to show you a picture of my family because I believe this is God's way of holding a photo of his family. And looking back to the past and seeing where it is they, they've been and, and the struggle that it's been going through. And so I want to show you a picture of my family. Hopefully. Yep, there they are. Yes, I have an awesome family. I love my wife. I love my kids. 
I think about, I look at a photo like that, and I'm thinking, where did the time go? Where did the time go? Great memories of great joy, but yet some hard times. For many reasons, hard times. And I look at a photo like that, and Lord willing, I'll live another 30 years. And I think I'll look back at that same photo, and I'll see more to the story. Realizing that there will be heartbreak, and there will be struggle, and there will be rebellion and betrayal, and all those things, right? We're not immune to those things, and that's what God is giving us a glimpse of in Hosea 11. He's giving us a glimpse of the characteristics of the love of God to his people. And my prayer is that as we study this chapter this morning, verses 1 through 11, we'll see a glimpse of God's love for us. And first, we see God's caring love for us, his caring love for us. The scripture begins in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to images. And so there's an amazing contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. Right here, God sets his affection on his children, children who are infant, children who are helpless, children who are needy, and children who are dependent on him. And their response, they turn from him. God in his grace opens up the door time and time again, and he cries out. Come home, come home. And it's like the louder he cries, the more his children run away. Did you notice that God not only called them his children, but he called them his son? Now, it's amazing to me because this is the first, uh, we, we see a glimpse in Exodus 4, the first time that God calls his people his son. This is not a common word that is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to his people as his son, but God does it for the very first time in Exodus 4, and that is a pivotal point in the history of his people. At this time, they had been under uh, the heavy hand of captivity in Egypt, and yet God raises up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And the nine times before that, plagues start to come in, right? Let my people go. And each plague gets harder and harder and worse and worse. And yet Pharaoh is stubborn. Pharaoh thinks he can outwit God, out uh, strengthen God, if you will. And then we get to the 10th plague, right before the 10th plague. And Pharaoh go, or God, uh, Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says these words in Exodus 4, 23. Then you, Moses, shall say to Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord, Israel is what? My firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, that he may worship me in freedom. And what does Pharaoh do? He says no yet again. And it's that very plague, the last plague that comes forward, that only those who have the blood on the doorpost of their homes, those firstborn sons will be spared. And Pharaoh choosing to not listen, chooses not to put the blood of that lamb above his doorpost. And what happened to his firstborn son? He died. And all those who followed in rebellion, their firstborn sons died. But those who trusted in the Lord and believed in the provision that he had made, that Passover lamb, if you will, those firstborn sons were saved. And, and when we think about Israel, Israel was born in bondage, right? They were in captivity when that nation was birthed. 
we are no different, right? When we come into this world, we are born into bondage. But by the grace of God, he has set us free. And why did God love them so much, right? Why is it that God had such a love for his children? Is it because they have something to offer? Is it because they're the best of the best? No. God's word says in Deuteronomy 7, 7, verse 8, and also verse 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God, God is a covenant God. The promises that were given to Abraham and passed down for generation to generation are still there. And by the grace of God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are grafted in, not only into those covenants, but more importantly, into the new covenant of Christ. But what's interesting about the word love in Hosea 11.1 is not expressing covenantal love. It's expressing emotional, affectionate, deep, tender, caring love for his children. And what does that caring love look like? Verse 3 and 4. Notice the I statements that are going to happen in these next few verses. Verse 3, it says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. So God reflects back. He has that photo, that family photo. He's looking back and he's thinking about those tender moments. Like like you and I, when we look back and we look at those tender moments of when our, our children are stumbling trying to learn how to walk. And because of that care, that love that we have for them, what do we do? We extend our hand, a hand of strength, a hand of stability. And we hold them and we help them learn to walk. The scripture tells us that, that they... They didn't realize that it was him who healed them. And we know this as parents. We know that our children are going to fall. They're going to get hurt. They're going to get a bruised knee, if you will. And yet it is God who has healed his people. It's a reminder to us that when we fall, because we will, God, because of his caring love for us, he will pick us back up again. God heals them. And yet again, the scripture says that they did not acknowledge that it was God who did that. So there's a sense of ingratitude, right? And some of us experience that as parents, where we do everything to care for them, to love them tenderly, affectionately, faithfully. And yet the response, unfortunately, comes back with ingratitude. So we sense like that heart-wrenching part of God's love, his caring love towards his people. And yet God's caring love for his people Continues. It doesn't stop. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness. It reminds us that our Father, our Heavenly Father is gentle. He's not harsh. With ties of love, the, the Father guides and He leads. He draws us to Himself. The Scripture says, To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. It's kind of like that image of picking up your child and your cheek to cheek, embracing your young child, in your arms. What a beautiful picture. And he says, I bent down to feed them. God stoops down from heaven. and He doesn't just feed us physically, but he feeds us spiritually. Yes, manna rained from heaven, physical food, but God gave us his word, the spiritual food that we need time and time again. And God is initiating not only covenant love, but he's initiating caring, tender love for his people. This is what our Heavenly Father does because this is who He is. 
Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Meditate on that just for a moment. God's affection towards you. That though we are unfaithful, oftentimes, it does not remove the fact that God is continually faithful to us. That God's declaration over you today in Christ is what? I love you. I love you. I love you. Not only does God love us with a caring love, he also loves us with a correcting love, a correcting love. Verse 5 and 6 says, Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. I will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. So instead of listening to God's counsel through the prophet Hosea, they continually are listening to the counsel of of others and they're rebelling against God, they're disobeying God and and God will, uh, because of corrective discipline, uh, corrective love, he is going to send them to the hands of the Assyrians, right? And just like their captivity in Egypt hundreds of years before, they will experience a similar type of captivity under the hands of the Assyrians. But, But why is that? Is it because God is harsh? Is it because God is not understanding? Is it because God doesn't know how to love the way that we would love? No, it's because they have refused to repent of their sin. Verse 7 makes it perfectly clear. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. You see, God's people weren't desperate enough right? They're, they're, they're saying that they're crying out to God, but in reality, they're not. They're crying out to the false idols of the world. And instead of turning to the Lord, they're bent on what? Turning from God. Now, it's at that point that we have a problem oftentimes with God's love, God's corrective love, right? We live in a world that wants to express love in many different forms, right? But anytime discipline or accountability is there, it's, oh, no, no. Listen, we need God's corrective love in our life. Though it may be painful, it is absolutely necessary. I'll go on to say it like this. If there is no corrective love, then that truly isn't God's love. And we live in a world that wants no boundaries and somehow define that as love. That is not love. That feeds the flesh. It does not feed the spirit of God. But remember, it's not a question of God's lack of love for people, right? The issue here is not that. It's not that God does not have the capacity to love. It's that people are unrepentant in their sin. The prophet Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 59, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, meaning that he has the power, right? Or his ear dull that he cannot hear. He's hearing the prayers. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. It reminds us that sin breaks the relationship. Sin breaks the fellowship. Sin hinders us from the blessings of God. And there's been about 700 years between the captivity in Exodus, or in Egypt, and that Exodus out of there, that God's removing of the people of God under captivity. There's been about 700 years, right? And for approximately those same 700 years, there's been a tremendous cycle of what? Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. And we question God's patience with us. 
Listen, we get impatient if Amazon can't deliver in two days, right? Right? And yet God has been patient, long-suffering for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, giving a caring love and a corrective love. And think about this from a parental perspective. That kind of love, consistently, faithfully. And yet there's betrayal. Can you imagine the pain and betrayal that God must feel when we turn from him? With words of great heartbreak, the prophet Jeremiah gives us an inkling of what that looks like. Jeremiah 2, beginning in verse 1, says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in, in the hearing of Jerusalem. So this is the southern kingdom. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and the land not sown. So there was faithfulness for a period of time, right? There was obedience for a period of time, but oh, how things have changed. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? It's almost like our Heavenly Father is expressing this phrase, what did I do? What, do I, what did I do? And, and for parents who walk through that rebellious moment with children, or a spouse walks through the rebellion of their, their husband or wife, or that friendship that has seen that type of rebellion and that type of betrayal, the question is ringing in your head, what, what did I do? What did I do that caused you to, to betray me, to, to go a different direction. The scripture goes on in verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. God asked the questions, what, what did I do wrong? The answer is, he did nothing wrong. God was faithful time and time again. And yet, we, we just like the people of old, have transgressed against the Lord. Again, we need the corrective love of God because we are a wayward people. But in God's gracious love, correcting love towards us, he is drawing us back to himself. Is there hope in the story? Right? Is there hope in the story? And the answer is yes. How do we know? Because there's compassionate love. God's compassionate love. So the picture again is God is holding that family photo. And... You just can imagine the tears of brokenness over his own children. He's yearning for them to return. And it's a reminder to us that when we commit sin, we're not just breaking God's law. We are, in a sense, breaking God's heart, right? There's a personal side to that. And it's in the midst of that heartbreak that we see God's compassionate love and we we see four questions that just get rattled off in rapid succession. 
Beginning in verse 9, the scripture says, How can I give up on Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admon? How can I make you like Zebuhim? My heart is chained within me. All my compassion is arise. I will not carry out my first anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. I can't think of a better place in the Old Testament that shows us God's patient and compassionate love towards his people. We see two places that we haven't seen before, Adma and Zebuhim. Anybody know what those are? No, these are the, the unknown cities, right? But there are two other cities that we are probably very familiar with, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the people did not uh, repent from their sin. And what happened? In destruction, in God's righteous anger, he overthrew those two cities, but the scripture also tells us in Deuteronomy 29 that there were other cities surrounding those two cities that were also destroyed, two of those being Adama and Zebuhim. And so we think about that for just a moment. So God in his righteous anger, and that's important, it's right anger, it's right wrath. Because of unrepentant sin, he destroys multiple cities, right? Now we have a hard time with that, but God is holy, we're not. And yet, in the midst, Hosea is not addressing only God's righteous anger and wrath towards unrepentant sin, but he's addressing something else about the character of God. When the scripture says his heart changed within him, it doesn't mean that God changed his mind. No. Instead of being overthrown with righteous anger and wrath towards his people, he is overthrown with something else. It's his compassion. In his mercy, he recoiled. You see, the verdict against God's people is clear, and this judgment is certain. They will be taken into captivity yet again, but it will not be final, and it will not be complete. God will restore his people that we'll see in just a moment. So the prophet Jeremiah says it like this in Lamentations 3. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict them from his heart or grieve the children of men. What does it mean? It means that God will not, indeed he cannot, permanently reject and turn his back from his people. Why? Because the scripture says that God's love is aroused. That means that, that at the depths of who he is, there is a love that he has for his children, a love that he has for his people, that though the judgment is right, there is mercy, mercy to be given to his people. And that's why the half-brother of Jesus, James, says in James 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. And praise God for that. This is the gospel message. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the justice of God and the mercy of God colliding together. The payment, the payment for that sin, that judgment, our sin, has been fully paid for through Christ. You see, God's plan of redemption reminds us that judgment of sin is due that the sinner should be condemned, but mercy pleads that we may be saved. And guess what prevails? Mercy prevails in Christ. How do we know? Romans 3. We looked at this last week. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that's patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? The just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die, the perfect one in my place, so that God's justice and mercy would be on full display. Jesus satisfied my sin debt and your sin debt, but not just mine and yours, but the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation, the perfect substitute for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we think about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, when Jesus died for the sins of the world, that provision, that sacrifice is good for everyone, but it is only applied to those who have put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why when we hear the words in verse 9, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you, we say, thank you, Lord. Because when we have been wronged, and we have, our first instinct isn't mercy and grace and forgiveness. It is revenge. You see, God is not only holy in his opposition towards sin, but he's also holy in how he loves us. He loves us in a way that we can't truly love others with apart from him. He does not give us revenge. He desires to extend grace. This reminds us that God not only is more serious about sin than we are, he is also more serious about love than we are. His compassion is like no other. God in his mercy will not come into the city, meaning he will not destroy the city, but instead he will come into their midst. He will show them tremendous grace and compassion. In his mercy, he withholds what they do deserve, what we do deserve. But in his grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. It is compassionate love by our caring Father. Lastly, it's a restorative love. Restorative love. God has declared what he will not do, but what is it that he will do? He will restore us. Verse 10 and 11 says, They will follow the Lord. So this is future. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. So think about the future restoration of his people. It's a beautiful thing. God makes a promise to gather a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. How? Well, we know he's going to do it through Jesus, right? But how do we see that in the book of Hosea? Look at verse 1 again. The scripture says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. About 700 years after the events in the book of Hosea, another event occurred, and somebody else quotes from this very verse. Do you know who it was? It was Joseph. 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 Joseph quotes from this. And remember the story. Remember King Herod wanted to kill all the sons that were under, all the boys under the age of two, right? And the angel told Joseph to go where? To go to Egypt with Mary. And then something happened. Herod, Herod eventually died. And then the angel came back and said, what? It's time to go back. And we see that picture in Matthew 2. The scripture says, and he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Jesus did what Israel could not do. Jesus is God's faithful and obedient son. He is the true Israel. The exodus from slavery in Egypt is pointing us to a far greater exodus 
the exodus that is given to all those who place their faith in Christ. We are set free from the penalty of sin. We are set free from the power of sin. And one day, one glorious day, we will be set free from the presence of sin. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And this act of redeeming love is initiated by the Father and it is accomplished by the Son. Jesus is the Lion of Judah and we will hear that roar again as he gathers his people again. Revelation 5.5 says, And one of the elders said to them, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is only one who was qualified to open up the scrolls. There is only one who was qualified to break the seals. There is only one who is able to complete the will of God and his name is Jesus Christ. And what will be the song that is sung during that second exodus, the final one, the same song that was sung at the first exodus. In Exodus 15, it says that they sung the song of Moses. Guess what happens in Revelation 15? It tells us in verses 3 and 4, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glory in your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you look forward to that day? Do you look forward to that day? That God has a restorative love. But until that day, we are to live on this earth in a way in exile. Longing for the day to come, but doing so in a way that reflects the grace and the love of God. 1 Peter 2.19 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We proclaim the message of the cross. And every time we express the message of the gospel, it's like the lion is roaring again. When you tell your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, the stranger that you meet, that lion is roaring. Yes, they may be words stumbling out of our mouth, but the content of that message is the roar of the lion that he saves, that he conquers, that he cares, that he corrects, that he is compassionate and he will restore. That is my king. Is he your king this morning? As the worship team comes up and leads us in our time of response, I pray that the gospel message that we see in the book of Hosea resonates with us today. If you are a child of God, praise God for his caring love, his corrective love, his compassionate love, and his restoring love. He's not finished with you yet. And though that family portrait with you in it may have its bumps and bruises and its hard times, you have a father who desperately loves you. Not because he needs you, but because of who he is. He is compassionate to you, and we should praise God for that every day. You know, God doesn't need us, but he chooses to love us. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never heard that message of God's grace. Maybe you find yourself in a place of wandering, place of chaos if you will God is the only one that can bring you out of that God is the only one that can restore your brokenness 
And my prayer and our prayer today is that you will receive him as Christ the Lord.